I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the Government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. You're joking. Not another one? Hello and welcome to another episode of Election Weekly, a podcast that reads party manifestos so you don't have to. I'm Laura Hood, Politics Editor at The Conversation UK, and each week I'll be chewing over the meatiest chunks thrown from the open windows of the campaign buses currently roaming this green and pleasant land in the quest for votes. The 2017 campaign really got moving this week, as Labour, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats all published their election manifestos. Today, as we face this critical election for our country, I launch my manifesto for Britain's future. A manifesto to see us through Brexit and beyond. This uh, manifesto is a draft for a better future for our country. It's a blueprint of what Britain could be and a pledge of the difference a Labour government can and will make. Giving you the choice over your future is exactly what our manifesto is all about. These documents are very important. They set out what each party is proposing to achieve if you vote it into government. But in reality, who's got the time to drill through all that material? I mean, I do, but I don't really get out much these days. I'll also be talking to two experts who can fill you in on the best bits. Joining me today are Andrew Scott Crines from the University of Liverpool and Ben Williams from the University of Salford. Hi to you both. Hello there. Hello. Andrew specialises in British politics and Ben also looks at British politics and political theory. Let's begin by talking about the Conservative Manifesto. Um, It's being spoken of as a break from Thatcherism. Is this manifesto uh, giving us an insight into what might be called Mayism? Andrew? Um, Well, I think that it's a bit of an exaggeration to say it's a break from Thatcherism. In fact, it's more of a break from Cameronism, in so much as that this is a restatement of some of the classic neoliberal uh, tenets that we expect to associate with uh, neoliberal conservatism. Then, is that is that how you took it as well, a break from Cameronism? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think it is a break from Cameron. But I think, you know, there's this sort of obsession with Thatcherism. It's almost 30 years now since Margaret Thatcher uh, left office. And, you know, I think it's the Conservatives really seem to use her and the media as some kind of, you know, measuring point. You know, I think Theresa May, in fairness, is is arguing yesterday that she's she's trying to move on. She has kept some elements of Thatcherism. She's arguably brought in some of her own ideas, and and she she has said, and and others around her have said, she she's aiming to be less ideological uh, and more pragmatic. And I think that's possibly why some people are saying it's a departure from the 1980s, which were more ideological. Mm. Andrew, um, which policy elements in in the manifesto mark a break from Cameronism specifically? I think it's really the restatement of sort of um, assuming that uh, free markets are dominant, even though saying that it's a move beyond them. And basically, it's also a matter of the presentation and the restatement of unionism, which I think is found in the title of the document. As in she, she presented it as the Conservative and Unionist Party? She did, yes. Well, if you look at the previous manifesto, that was simply the Conservative Manifesto or the Conservative Party. I think this is quite a deliberate stab, certainly within the context of the 2016 uh, Scottish uh, uh, general election, to restate the the cohesiveness of the union. I did notice that she she did repeatedly say the Conservative and Unionist Party throughout her presentation of the manifesto. So that was quite a deliberate tactic. Absolutely. Certainly a time in the uh, post-Brexit world in which we sort of 
looking to uh, reaffirm what kind of identity that we have in the country. I think it is a deliberate strategy to try and uh, impose a uh, unionist conservatism across the United Kingdom. Certainly, as is expected when the Conservatives do well in the general election, and uh, could see a significant gain, not just in Scotland, but also in Wales. So I think it is a deliberate attempt to break, as it were, from Cameronism in that uh, an emphasis on devolution across the regions has led to the perception of the breakup of the United Kingdom. I think it is a statement against that of trying to force it back together again. Although she does say that she is committed to the principle of devolution, so I think it's really those separatists and those that want to break up the union which that message is implicitly designed to go against. Hmm. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as Andrew said, she, she's playing on a sort of the, the, the Brexit environments. Uh, there is certainly, a, I would argue, a heightened mood of nationalism, both during and after the, the referendum of last year. Uh, there's certainly polls suggest that the Conservatives are, are chipping into that mood and gaining votes. As a result, they appear to have absorbed a huge swathe of, of, of UKIP voters, if the polls are to be believed. And there's political gain from them, that, not only in England, but also, I think, as Andrew mentioned, in Scotland, where they, according to polls, they could gain a number of seats, and even in Wales. So, so painting themselves as the, as the party of the union after Brexit uh, appears to be a, a deliberate strategy that they're pursuing at this election. There's been a lot of talk about the policies to make wealthier pensioners pay for their fuel and pay for the costs of their care. That's been seen as a play to working families, working people, um, traditional Labour voters. I think you're right in that it is a play to the traditional uh, Labour voters because there's this perception within the uh, Cameron Osborne era that austerity has basically meant those that uh, can pay the most won't. And that that perception has led to a sort of backlash against mainstream conservatism. And by attempting to create the idea that, uh, yeah, that the more wealthy people will be deprived of their uh, winter fuel allowance and uh, other benefits, uh, it's trying to sort of represent another break from communism. Is that an electoral strategy that's likely to pay off? Um, will it actually win over Labour voters? It's an electoral strategy that is likely to pay some dividends with those that believe that everyone should pay their fair share, and with those that believe that uh, the wealthy pensioners have not been paying their fair share. Uh, Whether that will appeal to Labour voters, however, is another matter because uh, of the principle of universalism. It runs contrary to that completely and reimposes a means test in something which was basically, uh, yeah, a universal provision. So your die-hard Corbynite is not really going to like anything which runs against the principle of universal application of social welfare. But the more pragmatic Labour person, it might appeal to their sense of fair play. Mm. Yeah. And, and in, on the other side, uh, is, are the pensioners that are being hit by uh, fuel tax or increased costs for their care, are they likely to turn away from the Conservatives? I mean, it, I, I would argue that there's, there's, there's a gamble she's taken here. And she's, she's again looked at the polling figures. And because the Conservatives are so overwhelmingly dominant amongst the older age range um and they appear this this age group appear to be the most hostile to corbyn there's almost an argument that she 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 can she's slightly taking their support for granted in the sense that by sort of slightly offending some of them it's something she can afford to do because she's in such a dominant uh, electoral position significant numbers are not likely to turn away even on the basis of that there may be a few abstentions there may be a few switches but she's still likely to keep the vast majority of that older age range voting for her there's also the scenario in which some wealthy pensioners will agree with it. 
and we'll think yeah. that's a fantastic idea that they don't act, they don't need it, they don't want it, and thank goodness they yeah. can get rid of it. Mm. Yeah. I've heard people actually say that, and anecdotally and in terms of some polling evidence that, that that actually is the case. And there has even been people in the Labour Party who've argued for that that possibly it was a bit too generous. And um, in an era of austerity, they're the kind of people who should be sort of um, sharing more of the load, as it were, of, of covering the costs of this. That in itself taps into the message that that permeates this whole manifesto that um, the needs of the individuals should should come second to the needs of us all as a nation. Do you think that message has been solved successfully in this manifesto? I think. Well, I think you know there is an argument to say that one of the things Theresa May is trying to do that is different from Thatcher and that Cameron was trying to do as well is to make the Conservatives be seen as less kind of individualistic and more concerned with with society. You know, we've had things like the big society. The shared society, this idea that we were, you know, we're, we're all in it together, as it were, which some people were sceptical of, I think, which Andrew mentioned. Um, I think she's possibly trying to reaffirm that now and, and emphasise that, you know, we do have communal bonds and we all have to play our role. Of course, one of the fundamental tenets of the big society was that the individual must come together in a collective, as it were, to support one another. So the emphasis yeah. is very much still on the individual contributing, even though it appears to be a, uh, yeah, a society-wide uh, idea. Um, hidden fairly far down in the manifesto is the promise to repeal the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. This is the law that means that we have to have an election every five years. So we're going to yeah. see the end of that under a Conservative government. What do you think the uh, immediate implications are for that? Are we going to be having an election in two years' time, three years' time? Well, I think that the issue with the Fixed-Term Parliament Act has been, it's really something of a stabilising rhetorical device that the coalition used to prevent the uh, narrative emerging that it was going to collapse. Because there was, as you remember, in 2010, there was the suspicion that the Tories and the Lib Dems could never work together. So the Fixed-Term Parliament Act was used to sort of dampen down and stabilise the government and get rid of those rumours and that narrative. In the event, it's proven to be a bit of a democratic anomaly in that if a government does want to call another election, all they have to do is get to the votes in the Commons, and no opposition is going to vote against democracy. So it turned out to be something of a, yeah, red herring. That's right, yeah. I think on a, on a, on a fundamental level, you know, it, it, it's a sort of another trashing of the Liberal Democrat input into the coalition, because that was something, again, that they proclaimed as being a, uh, a democratic improvement that improved our constitution and made it a bit more structured and more democratic and it appears to be as, as andrew says uh, pretty toothless it was very very easily overturned in a vote it would appear on the surface to strengthen the executive weaken parliament apparently and as i was reading actually in another article the other day i mean there is an argument to say it gives theresa may the opportunity that if she does get a brexit deal of some sort that she wishes to then present to the population we could have another general election much earlier than the typical four or five year term. This is what made me uh, ask about this. I, I, do you do you see that happening? Do you think that she is likely to call a general election with a Brexit deal to get a mandate on that? Well, I still wouldn't rule out a 2020 election. Right. But, uh, yeah. but I would right, say yeah. that she would only go to the people who she was confident of winning it. Mm. Uh, if she right. wasn't confident of winning it, she would then need to spend some time persuading the people how it has been a success, regardless of what they get. And so that may put the desire for an election back a year or two. Mm. But if it's a a good deal, is an oxymoron. But if it's a deal that she can sell, uh, then I think she might go for an earlier election. Yeah, I think the timescale, as Andrew says, the timescale, if she got a deal in 2019, she'd then have a period of time trying to sell it to the population and could go again in 2020 
she could even have it if it was a deal that was popular then she felt was a was a good one she could even increase her a majority again based on what she gets this time we also need to consider in normal everyday conventional politics because uh, the conservative party after they've been power for a while do start to get a little bit tired and cranky and Ooh, by that point it could be in power for 10 to 12 years so yeah. there may be issues of conservative party management that you need to consider as well we didn't actually hear a huge amount about Brexit at the manifesto launch uh, yesterday, though. Was that quite a deliberate strategy? For her, the narrative that she wants to construct is Brexit means Brexit. Is it over with? It is a done debate. Now it's just a case of getting the deal. Mm. So while she will always be known as the one that negotiated Brexit, she still wants to carve out her own non-Brexit legacy. So at the moment, it's a little early to say what, that, to say what that's going to be. But uh, it does seem to be... A restatement, confident conservatism. I think she's possibly knows that the Brexit argument, in a way, has been won. She's got a very dominant position on it, and possibly she was trying to engage some of the aspects of the Labour Party manifesto, perhaps that are raised on on more domestic issues, to show that her agenda is a is an alternative to what she dismissed as Labour's unrealistic one. Now, well, that's an attempt to appeal to the moderate Labour person, who is pretty much yeah, that's right. so agreed by Corbyn's leadership that they are politically homeless. Now, one group who are less keen to discuss Brexit as a done deal are the Liberal Democrats. I just want to ask quite briefly about their manifesto, because to me, it, it read quite strangely, because at the very, very beginning of the document, party leader Tim Farron openly conceded defeat. He says the Conservatives are going to win the election, and his aim is to build a strong opposition. And that made the rest of the document read a bit strangely to me because it was a list of promises from a party that is not really aiming to be in government. The main promise in the document is to hold a referendum on the Brexit deal. So how are we to take any of the information in the Liberal Democrat manifesto? Well, the problem that the Lib Dems have is that the 48 cent uh, of uh, Remain voters is incredibly soft. It's not really something that they can electorally tap into. And by trying to do so, uh, they've rather... Yeah, but they've not been able to position themselves in a credible position with the voters. Realistically, I think the Lib Dems were never, ever going to be in a position to form the next government. I mean, they're coming from a position of eight MPs, and it looks like that may go down for the general election, though. Obviously, if they go up, I predicted that as well. Uh, <laughs> so, so really, I think they accepted that they had to be realistic in their ambition. But I think they're being a little unrealistic um, in that they hope that they can successfully achieve the second referendum because they simply won't be in a position to do so. The best they can yeah. hope for is to apply pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think they're just obviously, they're just being realistic in the sense that, you know, on on paper and, and according to electoral logic, they can't win given the electoral system. And as Andrew said, given the very low position that they're coming from. Um, so in, in saying that, I think, I think their strategy is obviously, and, and some Labour MPs in marginal seats are doing this, they're, they're acknowledging there's going to be a Conservative government, but they're arguing that there has to be some degree of opposition uh, and therefore to, to save and vote for certain MPs in certain seats who can therefore remain as MPs to, to oppose the, you know, the so-called hard Brexit that's being negotiated. And I think, yeah, as, as Andrew would say, I mean, I think their position on Brexit is only appealing to a relatively small minority of people now. And even people who voted to remain are pragmatically accepting that, you know, it's time to... It's time to get on with it uh, and, and, and go ahead. And, and I think I've, I'm picking up a mood of, of sort of the, in some ways, it's quite a polarising election. You have got Corbyn appealing to the left 
and even some of the soft left are being swept along with it. And you've got Theresa May embracing conservatism, some traditional, some some elements of Thatcherism, perhaps. And I think in a sense that the Liberal Democrats are being squeezed because Theresa May's also got a foot in the centre where, where they normally occupy. Let's move on to uh, the Labour manifesto. Now, we did talk a fair bit about this in our last episode because so much of the information in the document uh, was leaked ahead of time. But um, we now have the uh, final version. And Labour actually caught a bit of a poll boost this week, though it should be said not by enough to uh, actually win the election. What do you think explains that boost? What What do you think might be popular in the manifesto? I'm not entirely sure if the boost was a result of the manifesto. I think it was just what happens in a general election. The uh, government, governing PRT and the opposition narrow as you get closer to polling day. And then the on, on polling day itself, they sort of come in really, really quite far from one of them. I mean, if you look at 2015, there was talk of Milliman becoming prime minister with a coalition, maybe, that his number of MPs was going to go up considerably based on the polls that were available at the time. And it didn't happen. So... Whilst there is a narrowing, I don't know if we can attribute it to the manifesto. Although I could, of course, be wrong. Usually am. <laughs> ben? Well, I think, you know, I think they've revealed some eye-catching policies. There's, there's no doubt about that. I know some of them were trailed in the, in, in the leaf the previous week. But when you look at the, the, the policies of sort of improved funding for health, education, you know, abolition of tuition fees, nationalisation of industries, which are deemed in some eyes to be not running properly, um, additional taxation on, on the better off, uh, an enhanced living wage. And, and of course, they, they have, in, in fairness, provided a, a costing to these things, whether you believe them or not is another matter, but they have done. And the Conservatives haven't provided a costing. Um, you know, they, are, they have been quite eye-catching and, and of course, you know, some people's imagination. Um, that would appear to explain it. And, but, but I would agree possibly with what Andrew said in the, in the sense in the longer term, they appear to be gaining at the expense of some of the smaller parties, if you look at the polling information. And the Conservative vote isn't really declining by a huge amount. And if the Conservative vote remains as it is fairly solid, then the gap is can't really narrow much more. There's also the possibility of Labour increasing its polling leads in safe seats, which basically would be electorally insignificant. Yeah, that's correct. And also, of course, at the last, you know, the thing about polls is that the last election, and in previous elections, the Labour vote was actually overestimated. Uh, it was polling higher at the last election than it actually its actual result was. Um, so, of course, people are sceptical of polls, but Labour in particular needs to be aware that it tends to often over-exaggerate their support, which is something they should be concerned about. Of course, also realistically, Labour is simply just not going to win this election. They, they need to have a 97-style swing in order to have a majority of one. They are basically the opposite of that at the moment. In fact, it, if this is a replay of 97, it's from the other side coming from an even lower base. Yeah, yeah. I think I think what Andrew's saying is, is right about the, again, further evidence has come out from, I think, the University of East Anglia this week when they've done some seat-by-seat analysis. And it does look like Labour's vote is very high in some of its safe seats. But in marginal seats, it, it, it's struggling and it's some way behind. And that, that could that could be an element of the polling. I have to consider the Corbyn factor in all of this. He is basically an ineffective leader in so much as he cannot cut through to those... Uh, floating voters or the non-politically aligned voter which and of course Tory voters which Labour simply need to attract to if they ever want to get into power. Indeed well I think that's probably everything we can uh, squeeze in for today. Thanks very much Andrew Scott Crines from the University of Liverpool. Thank you very much. And Ben Williams from the University of Salford. Goodbye now. If you'd like to read more about the issues we've been discussing today you can find in-depth analysis on the conversation. 
Sign up to our daily briefing at theconversation.com slash newsletter. This episode of Election Weekly was produced by Gemma Ware and the music you've been listening to is called Chasing It by Jason Shaw. We're recording this on Friday and the deadline to register to vote is Monday the 22nd of May, so make sure you do. You can do it online and it takes five minutes. Don't make me come round there. And finally, a big thanks to the journalism department at City University of London for letting us use their studios. That's all from me, Laura Hood. Goodbye.